0: hello and welcome to the hacked off podcast in today's episode i have nick Blundell with me um nick has been on the podcast before but nick for the benefit of anyone who's listening who hasn't seen your previous episode
1: what is it that you do Yes, so I work for a company called AppCheck, and we specialize in automated scanning for vulnerabilities in web applications. Um, That's our main focus, and so my main focus is on exploring the challenges of how we automate that detection so on the on the easy scale it could be things like fuzzing for straightforward vulnerabilities but on the harder scale as we'll talk about today um, it could involve understanding how to um, complete authentication understanding vulnerabilities that require particular workflows and to actually exploit them things like that so that's my main focus really
0: So any time that vulnerability scanning or really any kind of automated testing comes up when I'm talking to people, people very often ask me, do I think that automation will ever replace penetration testing entirely? So I'm going to ask that question to you. Do you ever think that vulnerability scanning will get to the point where manual penetration testing just isn't required?
1: So if I was uh, dishonest, (laughs) I would say, of course, we can find everything through automation. You know, you you point you point the a scanner at your targets and we'll find all the vulnerabilities. But we um, our background is in penetration testing. Uh, our origins are from penetration testing, and we know that um, that certain scenarios require human intuition to find those vulnerabilities. So what we try and do is realistically get as close as we can as possible to automating vulnerability detection, making sure that we're not missing, um, you know, those low hanging fruits, those, those things that, that we might need to make thousands of requests to, to find those vulnerabilities, but we can find them quite easily. And so we don't want to miss any of those ones. And then it's just a question of how far can we push the automation to get as close as possible to penetration testing. But I would, I think I would. I always imagine that just like any, um, uh, like a a typical human computer challenge, um, we need intuition to do certain things. Some vulnerabilities are only actually vulnerabilities when you understand the context of that application that they arise in. And without that understanding, there's no way to say this is vulnerability or not. Um, Whereas other vulnerabilities are more straightforward. There's a, a much simpler signature for saying this is vulnerable or this is not vulnerable.
0: I think that's a, a big thing is that um, when I talk to people about automation, one of the things that I try and get across is the fact that that question, you know, do you ever think uh, automation will replace pen testers? Kind of, it, it's a leading question. It has bias in terms of it, it makes it sound like pen testers are the golden standard. The pen testers are what vulnerability scanners should be kind of aspiring to be like. And it's it's obviously great to hear the fact that, you know, the AppCheck team is, is founded with pen testers and you're really coming at it from that point of view. But for me, sometimes it's a little bit different in, in terms. it's just like you know what sometimes automation is actually better and give you know my my go-to example there would be if you look at something like checking to see if a machine has all of its software updates installed it's like you don't want to pay a human to do that it's incredibly inefficient when you know software could log in could check the list of available patches versus the list of installed patches and could do that much more quickly. So I think, you know, when it comes to vulnerability scanning, sometimes people are coming at it from the wrong approach and you should use automation where automation is going to drive benefit and you should use humans where automation isn't.
1: Yep. Um, and it's definitely a synergy of those two. And um, I think we've discussed before this um, idea that what you ultimately want to get to is a point where You've eliminated the most mundane vulnerabilities from your systems. And you're focusing all of your effort now with scanning and with manual pen testers to really find the hard to find stuff, the stuff that needs a real understanding of the application and real intuition. Um, and, and it's that it's that progression from, um, you know, getting the basic level of security, right. And then continually increasing the coverage and the, and the focus on that particular application ultimately with um, with manual pen testers looking at that and so they're not finding all that low level stuff that you really don't want to be uh, spending yeah. too much money on you don't want to report with you know thousands and thousands of cross-site scripts and examples when there's some other you know code execution vulnerability lurking in there that requires a real deep understanding of the application so this is where automation and manual pen testing works really well together
0: so for the audience who you know Very likely, you know, they'll work in information security, they'll probably procure vulnerability scanning and pen testing services, but maybe they haven't thought very deeply about about how it works. How does the system go about finding vulnerabilities in a purely automated way?
1: Yeah, so we imagine it as, well, when we're working on the the ideas and the, the software, well, I personally always try and think of it as a from a manual pen testing point of view, where I think I need to know if I'm going to find vulnerabilities in this application, I need to know as much about the application as possible in terms of um, a practical level, knowing where the inputs go into the application. Um, but then further, I want to know if there are any particular workflows in the application that need to be, that need to go through a particular sequence of events to trigger that particular um, piece of functionality. Like we always talk about shopping cart process where it has a, a defined start with choosing products and a defined end when you come to check out and pay for the product. And, and along the way, there's a sequence of definite sequence of things you need to do to complete that. So we want to know as much as possible about the application so once we know the attack surface which is what we call it all the all the places where input goes and this is disregarding repetition and duplication so we don't want to know about every product on a on an application a shopping application we just want mm-hmm. to know about that there is a functionality that is a product and that's a distinct piece of functionality from the rest of the application so we talk about the reduction or refinement of the attack surface down to its logical attack surface the actual the code excuse and pass of the application that we want to stimulate and then we talk about running that through a process of detection vulnerabilities which would involve at the, at the most basic level and um, we're fuzzing so we're passing um, payloads into the application to look for a particular response from the application that would signal there could be a vulnerability there so it's 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 a it's a case of enumerating the targets and then going through those targets and looking for vulnerabilities. And then as it, as you get to the harder scale, it's about understanding the workflows in the application and automating the workflows as much as you possibly can do within the scanner um, to find those vulnerabilities.
0: So effectively, you're trying to program the scanner to interact with the application in the same way that a legitimate user would so that you can find all of the functionality and then subject that functionality to testing. Is that it?
1: Yeah, exactly, so if you were doing a pen test, then you might be faced with a, a massive application, at least it's massive uh, at face value. The initial impression is that it's this has got a lot of pages, for example, um, but when you start to explore the application, you'll find that there are actually distinct areas of interesting functionality. And so if your focus is um, drained on one part of the application, And and over the time of your pen test, you don't actually, you run out of time before you can cover the rest of the application or even discover the rest of the application, then you're going to miss vulnerabilities. So the scanner is trying to do the same thing. It's trying to be um, efficient in its enumeration of targets. And it's trying to avoid spending too much time on duplicate uh, scenarios so that it can get the best coverage possible.
0: So there must be some functionality that you know is just generally complicated. An example that comes to mind would be like a a calendar function or something like that where, you know, you keep clicking next and it keeps loading days because time never ends. Another one that I think is perhaps more common would be things like authentication systems. So the example that comes to mind would be my bank, which doesn't ask me for a username and password. It asks me for a username, password, and the fourth character of my secret word. How does the system handle the fact that every web page could have some different implementation of that authentication could come in many different ways. And then also making sure that you're able to find vulnerabilities within that system, be them authentication vulnerabilities or otherwise.
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. And um, it's one that often our clients worry about at first when they when they come to us with an authenticated application. Initially, perhaps in a naive way, when I started looking at authentication, I my focus was on trying to generalize an algorithm for detecting um, how to complete authentication. And very soon, I realized that from, like I said, we do our we do research, um, vulnerability research, and we're in contact with lots of real-life examples of applications. And when you move away from the textbooks of how to find vulnerabilities and how to how authentication works to the real world, you find there's lots of variation uh, and things that you just wouldn't have expected. And so we've moved now to um, a scripted approach where we just make it as easy as possible for people to write a script that this describes, that tells the scanner how to complete the authentication through their browser, so which is literally like saying, go to this login page, um, fill in the username with this value, fill in the password with this value, click login, and then um, wait until you've seen some information. And and on top of, so we call this a Go script, um, but it's it's basically a simple way to tell the scanner how to get through a particular flow in an application. That doesn't need much programmer insight. It's it's pretty much tell it what to do, like tell it tell a monkey what to do. <laughs> That's that level of programming language, yeah.
0: Is that flow agnostic then? So we're talking about it now in the context of um, authentication systems, but it could be, as you mentioned earlier, a, a shopping cart.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and in terms of, I would say that most people, um, like we said before, you start with the base level security and then you progress to try and put more focus on the application you're and scanning. And, and I would say that most of our clients use it for authentication, but it's possible to map particular flows. We talk about, um, generally, we talk about CRUD flows, um, as in if you were creating a, a REST API or something like that, yeah. or, or any application you can think of, you can probably describe it as a, as a set of CRUD operations, which is create, update, delete. For all the different bits of data that application deals with, you can describe it in that format. If we know how to create that piece of data, whether that's a calendar entry or an email or, you know, a user profile, mm-hmm. a blog article, and we map that in a series of scripts, simple scripts, using go script in the same way. Then the application well, then the scanner can automate the flows, those flows, so it can create a piece of data um, it can edit that piece of data. It can delete that piece of data and it can run the whole cycle again, you know, 10,000 times. There are certain protections in applications where things like um, cross-site request forgery tokens. So when you're doing a particular workflow in an application, one thing that you'll quickly realize will stop you in your tracks when you're trying to automate it is that the application might be generating tokens per request. So when you're submitting a form, it'll create a new token. And if, if when you try and replay the next part of the flow with the the token that you captured in the first pass, mm-hmm. it just will get rejected. So by automating flows in this way, it kind of sidesteps those kind of issues where each sequence of those requests in that flow to buy a product on a a shopping site or whatever it is, um, they're unique values that need to be created and validated correctly each time. So we use the scripting stuff to get around those problems. But generally, most people use it for authentication. And it also means we don't need to worry about what kind of authentication it's using, whether it's, you know, it could be OAuth, it could be some of the single sign-on thing, it could be a standard um, login form. Um, But we don't need to worry about that because we just run it through a script through the browser. And what we, all we're all interested in, in authentication, ultimately is getting the token that comes out at the end for that session, which we can then use for the other requests that we make. So
0: you talk about um, when it comes to, I guess, scanning, but, but security in general, like raising this maturity level. Is this something that you experience with your customers where maybe the the first scan they do is very basic and then they start looking at things like um, authenticated scanning and then they start looking at things like uh, using Go GoScript to to target specific Specific functionality. Is that kind of the uh, customer experience?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we might say to somebody, you know, run an unauthenticated scan and see what you get back. And then based on the results, you might, you might either have a load of work to go back to the development team to fix a <laughs> lot of vulnerabilities, um, or you might find this there's not very much found there. So then we would suggest running an authenticated scan and perhaps Not with an admin user because likely most applications an admin user can do lots of stuff anyway and potentially dangerous stuff and that's that's part of the feature of the application so long as it's only the admin user that can do that Uh, but we would recommend running it with like typical you know general privileged users you know low privileged accounts self registered users yeah exactly and then we would build up and then and then if we we might suggest that you know there's this other stuff we can map flows out in the application you've we notice you've got a particular um, part of that functionality that we wouldn't be able to um, determine just with automation alone without a little bit more help in terms of a script that describes how to get through that flow. Once we have the script, and by script, like I said before, I just mean a simple go here, do this, click this, type this. That's enough information for the scanner to automate all of the requests that that will involve at the lower level. Let's say the HTTP requests or possibly WebSocket requests and things like that. Once it has, once it knows how to replay a flow, um, it can do that over and over again, and we can look for vulnerabilities in those and, and further enumerate the attack surface that we might not have seen without that flow.
0: So when it comes to authentication, I, one of the things that I think I often see get missed through um, vulnerability scanning, certainly like you, you mentioned earlier, for some customers that the right thing to do is is have vulnerability scanning. And then once everything's been cleaned up, like then look at getting pen testing. So you're not paying expensive consultants for finding things that you could have found more cost efficiently. One of the things that, that I always kind of almost look for, almost target, because I know that scanners are, are weak at finding it, is vulnerabilities like uh, broken object level access and insecure direct object reference. How does the scanner handle those kinds of vulnerabilities where information might be exposed that is confidential? How is the scanner supposed to know that that is confidential?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that people need to ask more. (laughs) (laughs) I always enjoy it when people ask that question. This is a good example where I said earlier that um, understanding the context of an application is important for identifying something as being a vulnerability or not. So um, what you mentioned was, yeah, directly accessing um, objects that should otherwise not be accessed by that user or even by an unauthenticated user. Now the the interesting part with this is that if you consider an application that is a public blog, um, then in that application you'll have few bits of information, but probably you'll have blog articles, you might have documents associated, downloads associated with those, and then you might have user accounts. And obviously to a human, we know if we were pen testing that application, we know that if we find a blog article when we're not logged in, or if we're logged in as another user, then that's probably all right, because that is public information. So if we find that we can go to a particular path and say, oh, this is a blog article, we as a human, we know that that's public information. So it's not vulnerability. If we also found that I could go directly to your account page just by changing my URL so it had your uh, username ID, your user ID in there, and suddenly I could see your private information. Then as a human, I know that I found a vulnerability there because there's no um, authorization check. So there's no check there to make sure that as my user, I can't see another user's private information, maybe credit card details and stuff like that. So that's an example where human intuition is required to mark that as a vulnerability. However, when I said at the start that we're really trying to push as far with automation as possible, When we talked about the flows before, uh, the idea that we could map out a flow in the application, with just by adding simple annotations to those flows, it's possible to say that this data that we access on this flow should not be accessed other than by this user or or potentially by an unauthenticated user. And again, it's just a little bit more information for the scanner so that it knows that this data that it's seeing as this user when it's scanning should not be seen by another user. There are cases where there are very strong signatures like credit card details. uh, You wouldn't usually expect those to be viewed by other users (laughs) and also we see we we have some checks like for gdpr stuff where sometimes when we're scanning uh, we get some data back and we find that there is information in there like people's email addresses and stuff like that and we can flag that as being potentially vulnerable as you know that data shouldn't be getting disclosed again it's i won't say that a scanner can completely do that but i would say that by extending this idea of mapping out flows giving the scanner just a little bit more information about what could be potentially sensitive if it's not got a very strong signature if it's not completely obvious otherwise you just say if, if a user so for example if i had a flow um, that created a new user account um then i would be able to say in that flow when i create a new user account this data that we can see when we view that when we when we look at the view step of that flow is um, sensitive and nobody else should be able to see that other than me or you know maybe somebody else who's logged in even depends on the application and then if we replay that flow or just directly try and access some of that data outside of the flow outside of that session as another user or as an unauthenticated user if we see that same data we can say this looks like it's vulnerable but yeah that's a great question and it's it's one like i said you with your pen testing background will focus on these things because you know that these are the things that are hard to automate like you said and um, it's because we need that intuition we need the we need to understand the context of the application to say either this data should be visible to anyone or it shouldn't be visible to anybody it's private
0: are there other issues like that then when it comes to authentication in general I, i guess maybe we should start a little bit back from that like what kind of issues do you come across in authentication systems
1: Yeah, I thought it'd be interesting to go over some of these because some of them are more obvious than others. And so I'll I'll just explain a few different things that can go wrong with authentication to give people an idea. Uh, Pen testers will be familiar with um, probably most of these, um, but clients may not be. So what might be interesting to start with the most obvious things that can go wrong and then build up? And... The most obvious thing that can go wrong with authentication is if you don't have a secure connection, you don't see that too much nowadays, but sometimes on, um, maybe test applications or, or, you know, some, some systems include an authentication form where you submit credentials and you notice that going over plain text. So it's not going over an encrypted channel, so it's not using SSL or HTTPS.
0: We definitely see that on internal applications where customers have kind of accepted that risk of, well, it's only people in our network who can see it.
1: Yeah, which <laughs> sounds scary to hear. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because, yeah, it's one of those things where it's it's much easier to intercept network messages than people often realize. Um, and that's uh, the most basic level that could just be because it's like a Wi-Fi network, which is fairly easy to intercept that plain text data. But even on a on a wired network, it's uh, there are many techniques for channeling that data to an attacker. So yeah, that's that's one of the the most obvious ways where things can go wrong. Yeah, you don't see it as much on the outside world now, but um as Holly said, internally. Yeah. I imagine there's lots of this on internal kind of office, you know, back office systems and, you know, yeah. and that's yeah. So yeah, make sure they're secure. I mean, on top of that as well, um Sometimes if they are using a secure connection, then it might be the case that it's not a very well-configured secure connection. It might not um, use a signed certificate. And it might be possible for a, um, an attacker in a similar way to man in the middle, the credentials going over the connection and supply just their own certificate. So they would intercept it in the same way. And if the, if the client is used to always clicking that box that says, do you trust this certificate? Then they'll click it the same when a bad guy intercepts it as when they don't do. So yeah. it's possible to steal the credentials like that. I think the next one on the list probably is... Um, just easy to guess passwords. So if you have a password like password or password one, then eventually, or not in not too long, somebody's going to break into that account. so we these are the kind of things that we know, really that you know you should have a, a decent length password with decent level of complexity because it makes it so much harder for people to guess those passwords. But then on top of that, even if you you might have good passwords, or you might have the very most most obvious Sorry, password.
0: Nick, yep. just before yep. m- before we move on past easy to guess passwords, I'm curious. Yep. How do you handle things like the potential for account lockout? So I do you know pen testing where I'm gonna I'm gonna try um, all of the things that you mentioned. You know, like password one. I'm gonna try summer 2021. All of those kinds of things. Um, and I can looking at application responses determine quite effectively whether I think there's a lockout system there or not. But how does the scanner handle that?
1: No, that's a great question. And that's why in the scanner, it will be an optional um, thing to do that. Okay. Um, because the last thing we want to do is start brute forcing passwords before we've even um, scanned the application with the credentials that we do know. <laughs> And then lock it, lock out an account. Um, So yeah, that's a great, a great point. Great question. Um, We'd make that optional. So we'd have an option that says, do you want to brute force uh, passwords? And if the client is happy based on their knowledge of the application to do that, then it's a good way for finding those simple passwords. But yeah, you absolutely don't want to lock yourself out in the scanner by doing it, you know, by default, I guess. Yeah. Yeah and it's another one where um, you know pen testing is good at looking at those kind of things.
0: I'd counter that and what I'd counter that with is sometimes with engagements with customers we have maybe discovered the fact that their response to certain attacks is maybe inadequate. Um, I can think of a customer that I worked with last year where during an engagement we we came to the point of discovering that they effectively could not detect when brute force attacks were taking place. I'm sure the technology could just nobody was paying attention to. So we we ended up running a brute force attack for four and a half days before we we successfully gained access. And that that was wonderful. And we, we broke the perimeter and it's a great vulnerability. But I think with many, many pen tests being so time limited, you know, it, it could be easy to imagine that you wouldn't give that function that focus. Whereas one of the benefits, of course, of scanning is, well, it doesn't matter, right? It's not like a human sitting there doing things. So I almost feel like, yes, there is a weakness with automation where you might lock something
1: out, but there's also a strength with automation where that thing doesn't need to yeah no and that's a a good point for why it's a good idea to have that option in there but make sure people are aware of the Mm -hmm. pros and cons of doing it (laughs) Uh, but yeah definitely I mean the other thing that happens just as a side when we're doing scanning is that the noise that we can create scanning because we don't try to be stealthy at least not by default we're not trying to be stealthy we're trying to find vulnerabilities as quickly as possible and sometimes that can trip like IPS systems and stuff and uh, you know that just block the scanner but that's really something that we usually and work with the clients to sort that out, to make sure that doesn't happen. Because um, once that happens, it basically stops the scan from succeeding, but we do detect that as well so that we do flag if it looks like we've been um, blocked. By a system like that, but yeah, the other thing on um, aside from scanning, just talking about blocking accounts and stuff like that, is that sometimes mm-hmm. um, the you know there might be a system in place so that if we are trying to brute force credentials, so we're looking at making thousands and tens of thousands of requests or more to to look for known passwords, we might find that the application starts blocking us, but we might find that the If you look at the application more closely, you might find that it's actually blocking us on an IP basis, so our IP address is being blocked. But then if we log in as a valid user account that we know is valid, it can sometimes reset those filters so it's possible to keep Uh to keep brute forcing so this that could be a flaw in the the blocking system it might be the case that there's some logic in the application that says if this person keeps guessing false passwords just block their ip address but then if it lets us if it finds that we do log in with a different user with a valid password it might say actually this ip address is fine so unblock it (laughs) if that makes sense so then you could imagine interleaving them and that that's uh, again another area where we would uh, like to automate it because it's like you said, doing that stuff by hand is tedious. And if we could, if it were the case that we found that was happening, then we might be able to just keep a valid account logged in to keep our IP address from getting back listed. But this is more of a, a rarer, I guess, vulnerability. And it's one that you would probably want to identified the, the way it was working. You would talk to the client about how this could be bypassed and how it can be fixed. The other kind of things that we do often see go wrong with, um, not just authentication, but we do, it, it can be a quick way into an application, is if there is a, some kind of a database injection within the actual login. So when we type your username or password in, uh, we might find if we put some crafted payloads in there, we might find that that input is not being validated when it's being compared with the records for that user in the database. So we might get an injection into the Database and this is a classic um, scenario where you can just bypass the authentication because you can manipulate the logic of the database query. So rather than saying if the username is this and the password matches the database, we just bypass that with S- some kind of SQL or no SQL injection that says no, just just or tree, you know, or one equals one kind of thing. We just say log us yeah. straight in regardless of the password. So that's another common thing that we see go wrong. Another thing that can happen, and we see occasionally, is just having weak session tokens. So just to explain what a session token is, people are aware, um, when you log into an application, it's not usually the case that every request you make back to that application, supposing I've logged into my banking application or Facebook or whatever it is, um, I don't need to keep posting my credentials and my browser doesn't need to keep posting the credentials. What happens is the first time you log in, you'll be issued through one of many different uh, mechanisms. You'll be ultimately issued with a token, and it's the token that you just pass back in each request to the application. So it knows it's your session token and it knows who you are because you logged in and it issued with that token and the whole premise of the session token is that it, it shouldn't be guessable it should be something that is random and somebody can just pull it out of the air and guess it otherwise they would effectively have taken over your session so the session token is issued when you log in with your credentials if you put valid credentials in but there are certain vulnerabilities that can arise and common examples of this are one that i've seen quite a few times really over my time testing is just where you have a time-based token so you might find that when you log in you get this uh, it looks like a random number but it's some sort of time stamp and and just to as rather than generate in a, a truly random ID for each user when they log in. Um, somebody must have, through oversight, they just thought, well, we'll just take the time that you are logged in, because that's going to be fairly unique for each user, you know, down to the nanosecond or whatever, or whatever it is, and they'll just use that as a session ID. But the problem is, once an attacker's realized that's what's going on, the search space for a valid session of somebody that's logged in recently is very, very easy to find. So if you have a, a session token that's based on time in some way, sometimes you might find a username is appended to the timestamp or something like that. But this is a weak token and it can be easily compromised. I've seen, and then...
0: I've seen a, a variation on that as well, where the the developer had used the system uptime instead of the, the current time, um, which is bad if the server ever reboots and then it's very close
1: to zero. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all those kind of things, they make it much easier to find a vulnerability. It's just a random long number. It's going to be pretty hard for somebody to guess it. It's going to take them a lot of attempts and it's pretty easy to do. The other thing that sometimes happens with session tokens is um, you might find that um, some applications have, I don't see it so much now, but to save people logging in over and over again with their credentials, every time it expires, they have like a remember me feature. And when you t- tick the box that says, remember me, it just keeps you logged in for a bit longer and it might give you a different token. And you might find that the normal session token is a random generated, pretty hard to guess value. But you might find the remember me cookie that's being used as an alternative for the authenticated session is much easier to guess. And um, so there could be a weakness introduced there as well. So I think whenever you've, whenever you've got um, multiple alternative session tokens that are being used by an application, then you need to look at all of them to make sure that one of them is not weak, because that would um, let you in. Another one that probably Holly, I imagine, has spent a lot of time looking at these things, but when you look at authentication, you might find that the authentication itself, the checking credentials is really good and it does everything it's supposed to do. It's got good tokens, but then you go on over and look at the other page, it says forgotten password. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think, supposing um, I forgot my password, how do I reset the password? Because if I can find a way to do that as an attacker, I don't need to know the original password if there's a flaw in this side of it. So the other side of the authentication is the forgotten password feature. And we all need a forgotten password feature because people always forget their passwords. <laughs> the forgotten password feature, well, they, they often work in similar ways, but it's common that you um, you might find that there's a place in there where you can put your email address. And it says, put your the valid email address of your account in here and click submit and we'll send you a password reset email that tells you how to um, find your password again. There are a few things <laughs> that go wrong here. One is that um, I don't see it so much now, but sometimes it's possible that when they're forming the email that's sending that email, that they're just taking the input you supply in that field for the email address and they just bang it straight into an email. And what can happen there is if you then um, you can delimit um, the email and add an extra email onto the end, maybe the attacker's email. So usually that's used using a semicolon or something like that. So if I put the email address of the victim that I want to get their password reset for, and I know it's going to send an email to them, but I want it to send an email to me that tells me how to reset their password. So I put a colon on the end of their email and put my email address in the end, and the, and the email gets sent out to both email addresses. Which is a really it's a nice example of um, you know these it's kind of uh, yeah it's it's a weird kind of attack that can be easy for developers not to even consider. Um, but similar to that is that even if even if it works, even if it emails just to one email address and it will only, it will check the account it will say, we're only going to email to a, a user that is, you know, on this system, their email address as they registered. Then we might find that there are other things we can do, like not to go too much into detail about how it works, but when you send a request to a web server. You include, there's a, there's a few headers in that request, some meta information about who you talk, who you want to talk to. There's a header called host and there's related host headers that can also be used. And in the host header, when you send a request to a server, in most cases, it will be the, it, it will be, you'll expect it to be the host that you've got in your browser, in your URL, when you're looking at applications. So like facebook.com or something like that. And when you make a request, your browser automatically will add this host header, but it might turn out that the application is relying on the host header that comes from the request. Um, When it's building other requests, like building the, uh, for example, when it's creating the email reset link, it might use a host editor that comes from the request, which of course, anything in the HTTP request, the attacker can change. So if they change that to a malicious host, the one that they control, it might be possible to trick the system to send the reset code to the attacker's server for that user. So that's a nice little trick that can sometimes be used to steal these password reset tokens. And as soon as we've got that token to reset the password, we just need to follow that link or put that token in somewhere and we can change the credentials for so that user and take over their account those are kind of things that can go wrong with forgotten passwords um i had one case as well an interesting case i'm to in see if you've um, come across anything like this oh, Holly. Yeah. but so it was a it was a single page application so what you know a javascript rich application and it had an api oh yeah and when you did the password reset it triggered an email and it sent that to you but the api actually responded with the token It was like um, it had been implemented so that when you did the password reset, whoever you were that did that password reset, if you looked in the API response that came back, although it's not displayed on the page, you'll see there's a JSON payload and it's got the the password reset token in the API. So you can just copy that as an attacker, put that into your browser. It was just the link to reset the URL, the, the password, and you could take over their password. I imagine that was in there because when the developers were testing the application, they probably didn't have the email system set up, or it would just be too laborious to, to do their unit testing on the password reset feature if they had to go and check an email system and stuff like that. So they just had the, the password reset link in the response to the, to the I've API. Seen, um, yeah. I've
0: seen that kind of issue uh, where organizations are trying to um, automate their um, testing. So it's, it's not necessarily that like it was a test feature that was put in there and then forgotten about. It's like it's in there intentionally so that they can automate through that step so they don't have to write automation code that, that um, reads an email. And I guess it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, the, the developer have got their make it work hat on as opposed to make it secure hat. It, it's, you know, you can you can understand where it comes from when when the, the context of what you're looking at is quite restricted.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those examples too, where it'd be difficult. I mean, we've got signature checks for stuff like that now in the scanner, but it's still difficult to know if it's, if it varies from that strong signature, it would need human intuition probably to know that that's actually the token coming back from it. Yeah. You know, it could just be saying, well done, we've done it. Or, you know, but actually to include the token in there is where the, the boundary between it being vulnerable and not vulnerable. But, yeah, that was interesting. And that was interesting with that one is that I later after finding that, I went to look at the documentation for the API. And it was also documented to return <laughs> the um <laughs> The token. So it had been completely overlooked as a vulnerability. Like you said, probably because they were focusing on work. I've got screenshots of that, but obviously I can't share those. (laughs) But it was one of those cases where it's so easy to... I mean, otherwise, that application that I looked at was perfect. Everything done correctly, apart from that slip-up. So it just shows you how... um, sometimes these things can slip in. I think that is that is a
0: big point to make that, you know, very often when we're testing applications, it, it's not the case that every input is vulnerable to everything or, you know, look at, look at things like um, SQL injection. It's not like every input is going to be vulnerable to SQL injection. It's just like one of them screwed up at some point. You know, someone had a Friday afternoon or a junior was looking at it or they just made a mistake in one instance.
1: Yeah, no, and, and I've seen things like that. And I think with, especially with database queries, I get the impression when I've looked at code related to those vulnerabilities that some things um, sometimes the shortcut is much faster than uh, doing it the proper way Um, when there's a complex query and they just know how to write that they just know how to do that directly Um, you know it would take them five minutes to implement it and they they go and do it without the uh, the proper kind of parameterized queries and stuff and it it, like you said just that one slip up opens the whole application up to uh, data you know the data being stolen and stuff so but this is why this is why we we're doing this I guess this is why we're talking because we we want to get people as close as possible to you know they get rid of all the, the more obvious stuff and then we just find these little instances and they fix those and then it makes the whole thing more secure and also testing regularly, you know, because when new functionality is added to an application, that's where something that was otherwise pretty secure, you know, there's been a, maybe a new person to the code, or they, they're not too familiar with how the different parts of the system interconnect, and, and so they make the wrong assumptions, and suddenly a vulnerability gets introduced.
0: Yeah, or well sometimes, sometimes things just change, don't they? It's like they're, um, they're focusing on a dif- different feature, they make a change to enable that feature, and it causes a weakness elsewhere.
1: Yeah, Well, that was my my other theory for that API disclosure of the reset token, the password reset token, was that this could be a dual purpose API that is also used internally by another system that it does a reset and it takes that link from the response and it sends email out. And that might explain why the API does that. But then it just happened that that also got exposed to the public.
0: You talk about um, systems being changed as well. I've had it before with customers on pen tests where we've uh, done a pen test for them and they have... Uh, had a significant vulnerability. The example I'm thinking of was actually command injection. They've fixed that vulnerability. The retest has confirmed that it's fixed. And then later on down the line, it's been reintroduced. So that instance that I'm thinking of was that the patch broke something else that was unexpected. It obviously was uh, rushed through because it was such a critical security vulnerability. So they actually just regressed that patch. They just rolled it back to fix the functionality without realizing that they'd also reintroduced the vulnerability.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that's so easy to do. And another, another good reason why just do things regularly and also you know where possible integrate it with your dev cycle so that if that change was made that regression and you're you you scanning based on you know a nightly build or whatever you should spot that thing uh, that regression uh, before you even push the thing out to production which is good so you know all these kind of things where like we said earlier you start with the basics and then push it push it and push it further and further integrate it with your dev cycle if possible and then you know you really you're finding those vulnerabilities before they even go out which is good. But yeah, it's the the thing with code. I mean, we, uh, we're both coders as well. Mm -hmm. And we know the dynamic fluid nature of code. And some days you write better code than other days. Some days you rush things. Some some things just take a long time to learn and a lot of experience to learn. And you think you understand something and then you might find a year later or something that, what you thought you understood is actually it's not the full picture you know it's it's people are always learning and it's that's the fluid nature of code and also code is never perfect code code and infrastructure
0: i mean this is you know something that that we see within um cloud environments at the moment you know you might learn how a system works today and integrate with that third-party service with how it
1: works today
0: and it might just be changed
1: yeah And, and just to talk about there's a few more things that can go wrong with um with authentication. And one of them that we often see as well is um, where it's possible when a user can change their password, it's usually good practice to uh, expect them to put their old password in before they can change their password. And the reason is because all too often we find when we're testing applications that it's possible through an attack called cross-site request forgery to update a user's password by tricking Mm -hmm. them to visit a malicious page. and, And you find that it's possible to just change the password to a known attacker password and then take over the account. And the reason this works is because the attacker can trigger a request within the the victim user session from outside from a from a different web page, it's easy enough to do. And it just it sends a request. It doesn't need to know the old password, so it just sets it to the new password that the attacker controls. And those kind of um those kind of things happen. And related to that as well, that we sometimes see is that mm-hmm. if you if you log into an application and you go to change your password, you might notice something strange like when you, you're logged into the application already. So you would expect the application knows who you are without you having to tell it again who you are. And as a pen tester whenever you see a request being made to do something, especially to change someone's password that also has a user ID in that request of the of the of, of my user of me and then I wonder why it doesn't already know that because I'm already logged in it should know that ID and I might find if I change that ID when I'm resetting my own password to another user's ID it might complete the password change but as a different yeah. user so we switch we tamper the we tamper the username or user ID in that request and we can change somebody else's password so those are kind of things that we sometimes see one
0: thing on across that request forgery, I mentioned earlier that as a pen tester I specifically target uh, vulnerabilities that I know that scanners have a hard time uh, looking for. With cross-site request forgery, one of the reasons that they like that as a vulnerability to target is the fact that it's no longer in the OWASP top 10. And I think there's a lot of companies who focus on the OWASP top 10, not not as a starting point, but as security in its entirety. So where vulnerabilities have, have fallen out of the bottom, cross-site uh, request forgery, is no longer in the OWASP top 10. My understanding of that is because it is now less frequent, kind of sometimes gets forgotten about.
1: Yeah, which is always a, because when we talk about the OWASP top 10, And we always try and, you know, we we say, well, that's, you know, that's, it's good to know those vulnerability classes, but there are other vulnerabilities that you need to watch out for just because they're not listed. And yeah, this is a good example because you might find that what's up there on the OS top 10 is a... is a particular vulnerability that in a particular context is not actually that serious as it might seem at first. But then something like a CSRF, the ability to change somebody else's password would be a highly critical vulnerability. So so yeah, it's, it's one that we always look for when we're doing pen testing. We do have, uh, it's another good case where it's difficult without understanding the context because we might find that there are certain things you can do with cross-site request forgery in an application that don't actually lead to any advantage to an attacker. And we wouldn't strictly say that's a vulnerability because there's no integrity long there but when it's changing a password then it is clearly a vulnerability
0: this is a a really good point actually because we struggle with that very often within within testing reports because the the way that i tend to describe that within reports is cross-site request forgery in non-sensitive function and try and try and make that distinction but sometimes you could have you know a single application that has you know two issues highlighted one that's like informational and one that's high because it leads to account takeover because we might still want to report that functionality or the application in its entirety lacks cross-site request forgery because it could be a sign of you know they're not following best practices
1: yeah and it's usually easy to avoid them i guess across the board, if done at like a framework level, I guess, or something like that. It's, yeah, so it's, yeah, and and another place we often see that, you've probably seen the same, is where you have, there are certain things that you can do, like voting, you know, rating products, and, you know, deleting things, maybe even deleting user accounts, where, because it's seen as such a a simple action, that there's no check of a cross-site request forgery token, so you might find that you'd be able to trick another user to upvote or downvote a product on a page, you know, like under there and things like that
0: i saw i saw one of those on a dating application a few years ago um interesting applications to assess where there was a feature built into it that was effectively like i like this person this is a trustworthy person or, or, or whatever and you could upvote their profile i, I guess it was um you could imagine a, a feature like that to avoid scams on those kinds of websites where they might say you know i have had a good interaction with this person upvote them uh, and that and that was the same thing where you could you could cause other people to upvote your profile and effectively uh you know (laughs) legitimize your scam or whatever it was you were running
1: yeah yeah and i think that's quite topical at the moment the whole discussion about fake reviews isn't it Mm, and so yeah i I imagine there's lots of scenarios for cross out request forgery where it's possible to to adjust reviews you know and things like that but yeah It's interesting. The other thing that we often find is um, the ability to, like I said before, you might find that you can switch another user's uh, password by starting the process to change your own password, then switching the user ID. And a similar thing can happen with um, any feature that lets you edit your user account. something I've seen quite a few times is where within that, if you're an admin user, you're able to adjust users' roles. So Mm -hmm. you're able to say, this is a low privilege role. This is another admin user or even a super admin. Um, And and you might find that it's just a case that that field for, for a low privilege the user is, is simply hidden from the form, but it's still yeah. present and it's still processed. So you might find that when you edit your own account, um, if you add a add an extra field, or you might notice there's one hidden that says role and, and set that to the value admin or zero or whatever, however it processes user roles, you might find that you can make yourself into a, an admin. And, and I always talk about one where it was another example of an application where it had it was pretty much implemented perfectly in the sense that I couldn't find anything wrong with it. But then I came to edit my user account and I found that you could change the user role. And it was possible to set that to super admin. And when I logged in after doing that, I found that I was the only super admin with lots of admin users underneath my account. Uh-oh. And it's you know, it's those little things that can, you know, slip up. And that's because you can imagine it that the same code. That's that's letting me edit my user account is the same code that lets an admin user edit another user's account yeah. and switch their roles. And because it's got that comma code and it's got not got any obviously it didn't have any check on which role I was, it would honor that value if I added it to my submission. And so it's yeah, those kind of things. Um, and I think just just before I it's just because we started talking about different authentication <laughs> vulnerabilities yep. and I hope people find it useful. Um, but one Um, that we see a lot more now is things like using OAuth. So this is like a third party authenticator where, for example, you can use your Google account or your Facebook account to access a user account on a different application. Just to save that application, having to track user accounts for every user on the planet, they just um, integrate with a third party authenticator. And without going into the detail of that, what it usually means is that when I go to log into this application that I'm looking at, um, when I click Login, it might say Social Login and I click Social Login and it takes you to Facebook to log in I put my Facebook credentials in. And then it says, do you want to allow this? We've all seen similar things. Do you want to allow this application to access your user profile? And you usually click, click yes. And once you've done that, that application, this other application, so not Facebook, is now using your Facebook profile as your user identity within that application, which is good and it makes sense. But it also means you don't need to remember loads of different credentials and stuff like that. So it's got benefits. But it's often the case... I mean, you can think of the third-party authenticator and then the main application, and the main application is trying to get the user profile from the third party to use in its own application. And in the exchange of... In The the message exchange involved in doing that, in setting up that process, if you look at the background request that your browser is making, um, usually you find that the OAuth server is usually pretty well tested, and you're not really looking for vulnerabilities on there, although sometimes Hmm. you might find them. But you're looking at flaws in how it's been implemented in the application, so how it's um, treating the values that are coming back from the OAuth. Server. There's a few different workflows that, that you can use with OAuth kind of authentication to get, ultimately to get the token and to get the user profile that you want to authenticate with. And, and those, are I won't go into that now, but there are all different kinds of things that can go wrong there. Things like manipulating redirections of, of where the, uh, the token gets sent to um, when you authenticate to perhaps sending that to an attacker controlled server, you know, sometimes um, certain bits of information are omitted from those requests, similar to uh, cross site request 40 tokens. And if they are omitted, then it might be possible to complete another user's authentication uh, to bind an account to your own account and things like that. So. So sometimes we think that because we've got a third party authentication system, then that's gonna be all fine. But it can turn out that if it's not implemented correctly or certain things are overlooked, then vulnerabilities can rise in those as well. I think that's just to give you an idea of the spectrum of things that can go wrong uh, with authentication, which is an interesting area because like Holly said, right at the start, Mm -hmm. it's the way that it's the gateway into the application. Authenticating it, and yeah. it's the thing that protects sensitive data that belongs to one user from other users being able to access that, whether that's their credit card details or any other private data that don't want to be seen. So, um, so yeah, authentication, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean there are a few other rare cases out probably won't go into them there's there's one other case that we sometimes see i've not seen it that often but i've 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 seen it in code when i've done code reviews and this is the idea of a fail open authentication logic uh, scenario and this is a kind of a textbook thing that you um you don't often see but you can imagine how it happens so if you imagine a piece of code where all it's got to do is check that my username my password match that in a database to log me in but it might just be the case that the way it's implemented says okay what's your username password so i send i submit my form with my username and my password and it says what's your username nick okay i look in the database and i find yep nick that's a valid username so i pull that record out and it might be the case that it then sets the username Nick on my session. So it's bound the username Nick to my session. And then it says, right, I'm going to check if the password is correct. So I'm going to take the password that was submitted by the user and check it with a database record. If it finds that it's not correct, then it might then say, no, this is the wrong password. So we're going to unset Nick from his session. So it, it, this isn't Nick logging in, this is somebody else. But the question then arises, because that's done in those two steps, because the username is bound before the password check. supposing that we can trigger an error to happen by putting in a really load of awkward text in one of the fields you know the password field for example so we cause it to crash and if it crashes before it does the password check it might just bail out then at that stage but it's already set the user into the session
0: yeah, I can tell you, I can tell you where I found one of these, which was it, it, just an interesting vulnerability. And, and you can imagine that the the risk would differ greatly was actually in a mobile application where uh, when you open the mobile application, it presents you a login box, username and password, and you send that request to the server and the server will will validate it or not. And then the server would send back a session token, but it also had a Boolean, which is effective, like logged in equals true type thing. And if you intercepted that request from the mobile device and, you know, give it, give it, to uh, bad credentials intercept the request and then just change it to logged in equals true it of course wouldn't authenticate you against the server so you couldn't access the user's uh, account details because of course the server knows that your authentication was bad but what it would allow you to access is anything that the device had cached all ah, right okay yeah that's interesting so you, you trick the device into kind of letting you pass the login box to see what was cached so it was a it was an interesting vulnerability and i, I guess it's just like like as you say there's just such a range of ways that it can go wrong
1: yeah, no, and it reminds me uh, of the things uh, that can happen with two-factor authentication, which is where you know we say two-factor authentication is good because having two secrets um, and preferably one on a different device that proves that you own a you know a particular device is useful. But it can happen in that case where if you imagine how somebody might implement a two-factor authentication scheme, so they take your username and password and they validate that and say, are you Nick and is your password one two three? And if that's true, then it says good, you've passed that stage, and now I'm going to do the two-factor check. I'm going to say right what's Nick get next token generator or whatever and generate a token and check that he knows that token but it might be the case that whether i pass that next test or not my session has already been effectively authenticated in the first step the cookie that i got then although if i follow the process to the browser it might redirect me and say sorry you failed the two-factor test Mm -hmm. it might actually turn out that if i just skip that part and and just go straight to my main pages that i'm logged in as that user so it turns out that you know the two-factor part is is only done superficially
0: you could imagine that coming about if a if an application had simple username and password, and then they'd added on multi-factor. You could imagine a mistake like that being made.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it should be kind of. We often talk about it being, I suppose, like an atomic. It should be an atomic process, like with that fail-open yeah. logic I mentioned before. It should be done as one step that either succeeds or fails altogether. Yeah. So so these those kind of things. Um, another one, last one. I'll just mention. Yeah. Oh, Not no, two more because they're, they're interesting. Yeah, I've got right. a list of ideas I thought about talking about. <laughs> and. Uh, Thank <laughs> So another one that we do sometimes see, and I imagine you've seen these too, is where you have, I don't know how to describe this one, but what happens is it it can either happen when you're authenticating that you get, you you type the wrong credentials and you get redirected and it says, go back to the login form. And you actually find that in the body of the response that redirected you has all the data that you're trying to access when you authenticated. It's just the redirection that took you away from it. Yeah. So you you scrub the, you ignore the redirection and you just go straight to the the data. You, You know, you're effectively logged in. It can happen with, we find where authorization checks. So you might log in as a user and you might not have an admin privilege, but then you go to the admin page and it says, it redirection says, sorry, you can't see this stuff. Somebody might
0: listen to this and think, how on earth could that occur? And I've seen it with... PHP, for example, where a redirect in PHP just sets the location header, but then the rest of the code will continue to be processed. So you would effectively need to redirect and then exit or something similar so that the no further processing is is, um, is done. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in PHP applications.
1: Yeah. So it's another example of the weird things that can happen and yeah, it's, it's, it's all interesting stuff. The other one, the last one I'll mention is um, sometimes you might have um, a perfect system otherwise, and you might find that you've got cross-site scripting on the login form, which might mean that you can send them onto the login form of their application with a payload, cross-site scripting payload, which I'll just explain, just means that the attacker is able to inject a script on the page. And what they can do in that scenario is, at that stage, they've not logged in, they've not got a session um, that's created, and and they might only find cross-site scripting vulnerability on the login page. Perhaps as a sometimes you see it as an error message in the login page that you can reflect the error message from the URL back in the page. So the attacker might then be able to send you a link to log into your bank, for example, with their payload kind of snuck into the URL. And when you click on it, it injects the attacker script in there that replaces the form processing so that when you click login with your credentials it sends the plain text credentials that you typed in to the attacker which again is another way of snatching credentials so if the rest of the application is in implemented pretty much perfectly, if you had that cross-site script vulnerability on that login form, it would allow them to take your credentials. I think this is one that we saw on, I can't see British Airways or some booking application where it was possible to inject a script into the, the payment card form. And, and yeah. the script was basically scraping people's credit card details as they entered them in the form and sending them off to an attacker
0: british Airways breach that they recently got fined for was similar that was a vulnerability where they were loading javascript from a third-party location but didn't have sub resource integrity enabled the third-party system was somehow compromised that script was was modified so the the impact is very similar to cross-site scripting but but really it's resources without sri that was the issue yeah yeah but you are right yeah let let them scrape payment card details which is like a powerful vulnerability.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm just thinking. You know, that that's. A, we've covered a bit about the kind of things that could go wrong with authentication. Um, we can talk about um, some of the strange things to do with scanning authentication i think what
0: what people will probably want to hear now that you know we've we've got this far through this discussion we talked about the the pros and cons of pen testing versus scanning and then we've talked about how authentication systems can go wrong and there's a huge number of um, issues that you've mentioned here i think what people might be interested in which ones can scanners pick up and which ones need to go to the humans
1: so I mentioned before that where there's a strong signature. So we talked about the ability to change a password, a user's password, through cross-site request forgery. Which means the way that works is that we find that the application has a feature to change your password, mm-hmm. but it has no prior check of it has no check of any prior knowledge of what the old password was or any other knowledge of anything that is needed to submit that form other than a new password. And if that's the case, then that's a fairly strong signature that we can pick up in a scanner because we can say this is this looks like a, a password change form and we don't see any of the tokens going into that form we don't see any no uh, any request for a prior password yeah. so we can flag that as as a vulnerability and we could exploit it as well in some cases, just to confirm it. But yeah, it's a good question. I mean, some of these things, they do need human intuition, really. I mean, there are, there are other things like checking things like user registration. You know, can you? There are certain things where, for example, you might find that you could register an account with a duplicate email address or, or something like that to compromise another user's account.
0: I've not seen that in a long time, but I can think of one example where you could specify an email address with white space at the end.
1: Yeah, yeah. Those kind of things, and then you can imagine that it, it, it might go into the database, and then one of the one of the accounts will have precedence by the ordering of you know the data in some way, so that one is able to access you know they, they, somehow they mix up the accounts.
0: The way that it the way that it worked in that instance that I'm thinking of, it was effectively a denial of service. So I could register an account with your username, and then you could no longer log in <laughs> because the new account would take precedence, and of course the new account had no data in it.
1: Yeah. But no, in terms of finding authentication vulnerabilities, I'd say generally this is an area where we can find some stuff and that's based on strong signatures. And that's a, an area where if I was a pen tester or if you were, you know, wanting to get your application tested, you would really want a pen tester to look at your authentication flows. And, you know, the, the whole thing together, you know, the, the password uh, reset stuff, you know, anything else in there, uh, the, the two-factor stuff, if there's any OR stuff, you know, in there, you'd probably want a manual pen tester to look at that stuff. We do detect stuff, but it's, it's based on signatures and things like that. So, and it is an area where, like I said, with the flows, by mapping out an authentication flow, it's possible that we could annotate it and to tie those together in the scanner to help find certain vulnerabilities. I mean, what a simple example of one that we can do by mapping an authentication flow is that mm-hmm. if we if we not only map the, the way that we log into the application, but also how we log out of the application, um, then the scanner can do things like it can analyze the, the login process and say, I can log in as this user and then I log out as that user, but then it can do stuff like checking if did the system actually invalidate the session or not, or is that session still live? Um, so all Although I did the logout through the browser, I might find the session is still live. Um- so it wasn't invalidated. So we can flag that.
0: That's super common. And and as you say, you know, quite quite a good one for for a scanner to check and get get a, a strong knowledge that like, yeah, this is definitely vulnerable. And I, I very often come across people who think, why would that be a vulnerability if I log in and then, and then the, the server doesn't log me out server side? I think one of the things for anyone who's, who's listening in is just the sheer number of shared devices that we have now. Like, you know, you, you want to check something on your account, so you log in on a friend's device or something like that. You log out thinking that is secured your account and of course if the server's not you know actually enforcing that then it hasn't secured your account
1: yeah yeah i mean most people would assume that when they click log out
0: that their yeah. session
1: is now invalid
0: yet. a very common issue in my experience
1: yeah. But yeah, this is a, an area. So my two main focuses in, um, in the research side of, of, um, of scanning is in, you know, one is in authentication, not, not only not detecting vulnerabilities, but even authentication itself is a challenge. Um, so when we look at scanning an application, if we're, if we're doing an authenticated scan, then there are lots of things that can go wrong in terms of scanning it. We could easily get kicked out of our session. I talk about them as session killers so Mm -hmm. aside from the logout there might be lots of other ways that can kill your session when you're scanning it if you if you send something the application doesn't like it might just kill your session defensively and you know there are there are other if you if you go back to the login form when you're logged in it can kill your session sometimes uh, we see this a lot with single page applications so very JavaScript rich applications that yeah. expect when when a user is using an application they're using it on a single page and all of that stuff but when we're scanning it we we kind of accessing the application in different ways and and we might be we might be doing lots of things at once with the application and one of one of those things might invalidate another session that we're scanning. And the problem with invalidating sessions during scanning is that if if this keeps happening during the scan, then we have a very high session churn, which, which means that the scanner has to keep constantly logging back into the session. And the more we have to do that, the less time or the less confidence we have that when we're doing our checks, they are actually accurately within that session. They're actually accurately authenticated. Imagine,
0: imagine it can just really slow you down as well. If every time you want to send a request, you've got to go away and reauthenticate again.
1: Yeah, so this is, we do um, a lot of analysis during authentication up front of the scanning to try and figure out how stable the sessions can be. And also um, something that we talked about before, but the this you know, I call them exclusive um, sessions where, or excuse, exclusive lockout sessions being the worst one, where if you log into an application as a user, and then you also log into that application separately in another browser, your new session invalidates the first session because the application doesn't support concurrent sessions for that particular user. Yeah. So what you find is if you're scanning an application and you want to do lots of requests in parallel, maybe is with that same user, but if you're creating separate sessions, they they just constantly invalidate each other. So we do analysis upfront as well to say whether uh, it appears that the application allows user concurrency in sessions. And if it doesn't, then it affects the way we, it doesn't mean we can't scan it, but it means that we, we, we don't try and scan it with multiple sessions. We use one session and we share it. And if that becomes invalid, we restart that. That session but if we tried to use multiple sessions at the same time they just all invalidate each other and and, and it would you know be chaos yeah yeah so there's all those kind of things and, and there's this secondary tokens sometimes in you know, authentication that aren't obvious at first that things like csrf sometimes you have session bound tokens that also must validate correctly for a particular request to be made, and, and if we're not tracking those accurately in the scanner, then we might find that although we've got the maybe the cookie value or the authorization header correctly set for each yeah. request, that we've missed off another token that we, we didn't anticipate. And that might mean that certain requests effectively aren't really authenticated. So there's lots of those kind of things that can happen. And just some weird, just some very strange mm-hmm. cases where um, an application that I looked at recently where when you log into it, it looks like any other application you log in with your credentials, but then you start watching the requests in the background and you see that on, for some requests, it uses a one token name. With the same value and another request, it uses a different one. Like you might say, a web token. Oh. It might be the parameter name in one request, like a get request, and in a post request, it might be like session. And it's the case that the application might be sticking these tokens in all different places. And sometimes, uh, I mean, unnecessarily in the same request, it might send two tokens together. So we've got to account for that stuff and not let that stum- you know, cause the, canna- the scanner to stumble. Yeah, um, just over.
0: got to account for unexpected weirdness
1: yeah like i said at the start there's the textbook security stuff you know and and there's all the rfc's on how certain things work but then when you start to look at real applications you find some strange things there was a, another example where the session token was actually most session tokens they'll have a it'd be a cookie called session or you know yeah. um, an authorization header or something like that and in this particular app it had a dynamically generated token name so that the token name was like a random number and the token value was a random number and every time you logged in it got um, a random a random number for the token name and a random number for the token. It was just, yeah, it's hard to understand why those things, you know, happen. It's like the PHP redirection case you mentioned. How yeah. does that happen in the code? How has how that been preferred as a method over just having a standard token yeah. that has the name token? And it's important,
0: it's important to understand that stuff because, you know, you might find one example of a vulnerability that has some quirk to it. And then, you know, giving that information to the customer might enable them to go and look through Uh, the rest of the code or even other products that they've produced and find similar issues once they know what the, the issue looks like in code.
1: Yeah. So it can be tricky to actually apply authentication when scanning and the picture is much harder than just thinking that, I mean, there are two sides of authentication as well. When we talk about scanning, there's actually, like we said at the start with the scripts, the idea that we can, we can write a simple script that tells the scanner how to log into an application. The second part of the authentication is being able to analyze that and understand exactly how the tokens are being issued and used in requests. And like I said, some of, some of that can be very strange and not apparent at first. And it might be the case that you, you've actually effectively scanning with half the requests are authenticated but the other half are requiring some other token that you didn't account yeah. for yeah it's a little bit more involved than it might seem at first and um, so this is an area where we focus a lot of attention that should be a good
0: thing for for customers to know though that your product and your research team are not just sitting there saying well hey the, the scan is pretty good we'll just we'll just monetize this now but but you know you're actively researching how to more effectively do this stuff
1: Yes. So we, we use our software ourselves for our own research. So from that point of view, aside from the fact that we want to, we do want to give the clients the best service that we can provide, but we are also. Wanting to, like you said, when you're when you're testing stuff, the repetition of certain tasks to find vulnerabilities is so high that you don't yeah. want to sit there doing it uh, manually. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we use our own tools and we develop our own tools with our own research in mind. And you know, people that use our scanner they benefit from that because we don't want to half authenticate an application when we're scanning it. We want to make sure that if we are if we're spending the time to find the attack surface by crawling it, which again is a whole other area how to crawl an application but if we're doing that then we want to make sure that once we do have the attack surface that we are actually scanning it accurately under the authenticated session you know we're not invalidating it constantly and and all those things and yeah because we know that we need to do that to find the vulnerabilities but we but we do say that it's not easy it's not easy to do honestly it's
0: just it's great that the the company is so transparent about that and it's not you're not selling a security magic box it's like hey this is the problem space this is what we're doing and this is why we've had the success that we've had
1: yeah, I like to think so. We, yeah, we, we're in it to find the vulnerabilities, you know, in the things, the systems yeah. that we research and also in the clients that use this software. So we we genuinely are interested in pushing it as far as we can. And we do okay. Um, You know, we've done okay in certain areas, but we know that there are other areas where we really, you know, we're really trying to push it, the automation side.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, Nick, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. If people want to find out more about the work that you do,
1: where can they go to find out more? So if you come to our website, uh, which will probably be linked, I think, but appcheckmg.com. will be linked. Yep. And you can find out more about us there. We do um, we do regular webinars and things as well. So on certain topics, um, so it might be a topic on authentication or particular vulnerabilities. So you can come along and see those. They're free for anyone that's to sign up for them. And it's, it's usually de- delivered by one of our technical teams. So it's it's a technical discussion aimed at, you know, giving real insight into the nature of vulnerabilities and and all all the things related, you know. So have a look out for those and sign up, come along, join us if you want to find out more stuff.
0: Nick, thanks for being on.
1: No, thank you very much, Holly.